Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here at River City. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, especially glad to be back. Last week I was in Madison preaching at a, a church that we often partnership in lots of kinds of ways, a church called Redeemer City in Madison. And uh, I was able to just preach through some stuff in Nehemiah there and give some, some of their leaders some, some space to work on some other things and take some, some rest. And so grateful as well for Aaron to be able to come and preach uh, last week as we continued our, our way through the book of Philippians together. And and uh, that's where we're headed again this morning. And, and I know Philippians, uh, for a lot of people, is a favorite, uh, one of the favorite books that you read the Bible. And it's easy to see why, because well, Philippians is full of all kinds of encouragement. There's lots of just uh, really encouraging and uplifting things that Apostle Paul has to say about this church. And, and the reality is, is that that's the case because in the 10 years since he planted this church, they have consistently been characterized by a love for God and a desire for others to know him and, and by a sacrificial generosity with their finances for the sake of the kingdom and by faithfulness to the gospel and to the word of God. And, and on top of that, they just actually genuinely appreciate Paul and care about him. And, and in fact, the reason why he's writing this letter to them now is to say thank you because they had sent one of their leaders to go check on him because they'd heard he was in prison in Rome and they wanted to make sure that if he had any needs that they were able to take care of them and meet those needs. And, and so whenever Paul thinks about this church, he's just encouraged. He's full of joy and gratitude. He has a lot to be thankful for for them. And, and yet what you see is that in the midst of all the reasons that Paul has to be thankful for this church and all the reasons why he is encouraged about where they're at spiritually and what God's doing in the midst of them, what you see throughout the letter is that he longs that they would continue to keep growing up in their faith. He wants the good news of the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus to keep transforming their attitudes and their actions and their perspectives. He, he has this attitude that they haven't arrived yet, that they were still in process, that he was too and that so are we. And so instead of just patting him on the back and giving him an attaboy, what you see is that Paul urges them, and us as well, to keep pressing in to the often uncomfortable process of continuing to grow up in our faith and to continue to grow up in, our, in, in a lot of the gospel to keep transforming us, knowing that God's not done transforming us yet. He's still at work in us. And as we wrap up chapter one this morning, what we're going to see Paul encouraging the Philippian church as well as us towards is, is to be characterized by living as citizens of God's kingdom, whose lives and whose community demonstrate the surpassing value and worth of all that Jesus has done for us and of the gospel. And See, the reality that Paul understands is that it's one thing to say that something is valuable. It's one thing to say that something has worth to you. It's another if your life backs that up, if your life proves that what you say is valuable really is to you. And while words certainly do matter, the reality is that what you do and the way you live, especially in the midst of difficulty, especially in the midst of opposition, it reveals a lot about the true value that we place on the person and the work of Jesus and all that he's done for us. And, and so Paul exhorts this church and us as well that we might live lives that are characterized by demonstrating the surpassing value of Jesus and all that he's done for us in the gospel. And so can't wait to show you that this morning. There's so much good stuff here. Let's pray and then we'll dive into the passage together. God, thanks for our time together in your word. We're grateful to get to study it together. And God, we just humbly ask that as we come to do that, that you'd be gracious to meet us in our need for you. And God, we, I don't have any power to change anybody's hearts this morning or cause the gospel to be good news or allow your word to shape and change us. I don't have the power to do that, but you do. 
And so, God, we ask that as we gather around your word that you'd be faithful to keep shaping us and transforming us and keep causing us to be a people whose lives are characterized by demonstrating how valuable the person and the work of Jesus really is. And so uh, cause that to be true in us, empower us in our weaknesses and in our lacks so that you might be made beautiful and seen as truly valuable, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 27 through 30. It reads this way. Whatever happens, again, uh, I was gone last week, but Aaron preached and in the middle of chapter 1. He, Paul was writing to this church and he said, hey, I'm in prison and I'm not sure if I'm going to get out or if I'm going to die in prison. Both of those are very real, very real possibilities. And so he says, he writes them in verse 27. So whatever happens, right, whether I live or die, whatever happens, he says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, when I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. All right, so again, Paul's writing to this church, right? He's in prison. He's not sure if he's going to be released or if he's going to die in prison. And, and what he says is that what, what he wants most for this church is that they would conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That, that word worthy, what it communicates is the idea of value, right? Uh, to say something is, is worthy is to say that something has value, say that's an important. What Paul's getting at here is this, this high calling for Christians to live in such a way that reveals the, the true value and the worth of the gospel and all that God has done to reconcile us to himself. And it's this call that we have that, that everything we do should be shaped by this desire to show how valuable, how important the person and the work of Jesus really is. And you see, because it, it's one thing again to say that Jesus' death on the cross in your place for your sins to make you right with God and restore you to relationship with him. It's one thing to say that that's really important, that it's valuable. It's another thing to live in such a way that demonstrates that you really believe that reality. So Paul says, whatever happens to me, what I want is that your lives, not just your words, what I want is that your lives demonstrate that they show how valuable the good news of the gospel really is. And Paul says this kind of thing a lot in his letters. In, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, he writes about living in a manner worthy of God's of the calling that God's placed on our lives as Christians. In Colossians 1, he writes about living lives worthy of the Lord himself. In First and Second Thessalonians, he, he urges Christians to live worthy of God's call and worthy of God's kingdom. And, but here in Philippians, he frames this exhortation towards worthy living in a very specific way. He uses a, a very specific word. And literally, this word, that, that, that phrase that's, that's translated as conduct yourselves in a manner, that's actually one word in the original language. And it's a word that we don't really have a good translation for. It's more of like an idea. And literally, what that word is trying to communicate is the idea, it's this call to behave like a citizen of a certain place to behave like a citizen of a certain place or, or of a city. And that would really have meant something to the Philippians because the Philippians were very proud 
of the city that they held citizenship in. They were very proud of that. You see, the climactic battle in the war that followed Brutus's assassination of Caesar, it was fought just outside of Philippi. And soldiers from Philippi came to fight in, in that battle and, and to celebrate them and how they had fought so bravely and honorably and courageously. What happened is that Anthony, he, he made Philippi a military colony and he gave them something very important, something very special. He gave the people of Philippi citizenship in Rome. Roman citizenship. And, and so even though Philippi was nowhere near Rome, they had all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen, which were many, including, not least of which, is the fact that you didn't have to pay any local taxes, which everybody's on the team of that, right? You know, like it was, it was a benefit for everybody, right? And so the people that Paul's writing to here, they would have been very proud to be from Philippi. And they would have counted it as a really a great honor to represent their city wherever it is that they were. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever met somebody who's from Texas, right? People, people who are from Texas, they are really proud of being from Texas, right? And they love telling everybody that they're from Texas and about how great Texas is. The reality, though, is that no one needs them to tell them they're from Texas. Because like you can see from like two miles away, they're from Texas. It's not, it's not hidden, right? They got a belt buckle the size of Montana, like just like launching sun rays at everybody's face, right? They have a truck you can hear six counties away, and like, like the only food they eat is brisket for whatever reason, right? It's just like, it's like, oh, you're from Texas? I had no idea, right? Like it's, it's just, you're totally surprised. But people from Texas, they love telling you they're from Texas, and they're very proud of it, right? And that's kind of like what would happen for a Philippian. Somebody said, behave like, a, behave like you're a citizen. Behave like you're a citizen who represents this place, shows the value of the place that you're from. That's kind of like what it would be like. You see, but Paul doesn't say to them, behave like you're a citizen that shows the value and the worth of belonging to Texas. He doesn't say, behave like a citizen that shows the value and the worth of belonging to Philippi or Rome. He says, behave like a citizen. Conduct yourself as a citizen whose life shows the surpassing value and worth of belonging to Jesus. Whose life reveals the real value and worth of all that he has done to make you a citizen of his kingdom. Let your citizenship in heaven be the thing that motivates your life, that drives all that you're doing. And so the question that you've got to ask, right, is what does it look like to live that way, right? What does it mean to, to live in such a way that your life shows the surpassing value and worth of belonging to Jesus and the good news of all that he has done to make you a citizen of his kingdom? And thankfully, Paul answers that question for us. I always love when it's right in the passage and he's like, oh, that's a good question. Thank you for answering it right away. In fact, what we're actually gonna see is that Paul kind of sets up a, a, a rubric in a, little, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a way this morning in our couple of verses. And what he's gonna do throughout chapter two Two is actually flesh out in more detail and with more examples of what it looks like, what this stuff looks like practically lived out in, every, in people's lives in real ways. So we're going to keep coming back to some of the stuff that we're going to see here this morning. But, but there, there's four characteristics of, of a life that he talks about that shows the surpassing worth of Jesus and, and the gospel. And the first thing that Paul says that our, the way that our lives show the, the value and the worth of all that Jesus has done for us is, he says, is by standing firm in the one spirit. That idea of standing firm, it's about planting your feet in order to offer resistance to something. It's a defensive posture. And so you have to ask the question, right? What defensive against what? Resistance to what? 
What you see throughout the New Testament is that when Paul's talking about this, he's talking about opposition to the advancing of the kingdom of God and the good news of the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, he, he writes, he's them, he says that, he tells them that you know that about how we had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of opposition. In verse 30 of our own passage this morning, he writes that, he says that you, that you too are going through the same struggle that you saw that I had. That what you saw that I went through, you're going through that, and you hear that I still have. You see, when Paul came to Philippi for the first time, it did not go well for him. Right? One of the first things that he did when he got to the city is, is that he exercised a demon from this young girl whose owners made a ton of money off of her being able to kind of predict people's fortunes. And, and when he, he had removed that ability from her, then his, the owners of this, of this young woman, they were really angry. They were really angry about that. And they came to the officials of the city and they had Paul stripped and beaten and flogged and thrown in prison and chained. And yet what we see is that Paul keeps, ta keeps talking about Jesus no matter what. You see, you keep standing for, you keep defending the things that really matter to you. Your family, your home, your country, right? You defend those things. And you, you suffer costs to be able to defend those things because they're important to you, they matter to you. Conversely, if your defense of whatever it is is weak or half-hearted or if it just kind of crumbles at the first sign of opposition, then it reveals what, what it actually reveals is the, a low value and worth for whatever it is the thing that you're defending. If it's not really worth defending that much, then it must not be that important. See, the same is true spiritually. If we are only willing or able to follow Jesus when it's easy, when everyone affirms what it is, that what it means to follow him, or if as soon as our faith is challenged it begins to, or begins to cost us something, then we just turn and run, then what we're showing, what we're revealing with our lives is that the gospel is not really that valuable. That it's something that can be easily, quickly turned from, run against. That it's not that important to us. So Paul says one of the primary ways our lives demonstrate the worth of the gospel is by standing firm in our faith in the midst of opposition. Not walking away, not giving up, not giving in to pressures around us, but by standing firm. And I'll just say this as a side note this morning. The reality is for us in Dubuque 2022, we're not facing like some insurmountable radical opposition to following Jesus. But there may indeed come a day when that does happen. And Paul says that the way that we stand, standing firm in the midst of our faith, not giving in, not pressing, not being pressured by the world around us, that that is one of the ways that we show how valuable the kingdom is, what it means to be a part of it. But standing firm is not the only way we show the worth of the gospel. Paul goes on at the end of verse 27 to say, not just that, they st that they're standing firm, but that they're striving together as one for faith in the gospel. If, if standing firm is a defensive position, then, then, then striving together is an offensive one. It's kind of like two sides of the same coin, right? See, striving for faith in the gospel is about ultimately about intentionally pressing into your own faith. It's about rejecting having a passive view of your faith and instead taking an active role in, in pursuing and prioritizing, following Jesus and growing up in him and rooting yourselves in the truths of the gospel. It looks like being intentional about growing in your understanding of God's word and, and of, of his will and of his desires for you. And it looks like growing in your ability to apply those things to, to the to the, every part of your life. And so it looks like being intentional about growing and pursuing that yourself, but it's not just about you. 
That language, the idea that Paul's getting across is in striving for the faith of the gospel is not just a personal thing, it's, it's, about, it's not just an inward thing, it's an external thing as well. It's about helping others to grow in their faith as well. That includes helping others to grow up in maturity, but also helping people that don't know Jesus to find him to find their identity in him and communicating the truths about the gospel to people. See, the reality is that you tell people about what you love and you tell people about the things that really matter to you. Whether that's your family or a great restaurant or your favorite sports team, you always talk about the things that are important to you. You talk about that stuff. Nobody has to tell you to do it. And the way that you talk about things, it shows the worth that you place on those things. There's a well-known magician named Penn Gillette. He's a staunch atheist, has no interest in God whatsoever. But it's very interesting the way he talks about this. You see, one of the things that he's, he's quoted off for saying is, that, is that, he, he, that he doesn't respect people who don't share their faith. He said, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, he says, there's a certain point where I would tackle you, even if that was awkward. And if you believe, he says, that everlasting life is possible, then that's way more important than even that. See, our lives demonstrate the value of the gospel and all that Jesus has done to make us citizens of his kingdom, not just in the way that we stand firm, not just in the way that we pursue following him ourselves, but in the way that we talk about it with others. And if Jesus isn't worth talking about with others, if it's not worth giving our lives so that others might come to know him and be reconciled to God through him, then what we reveal in our actions is that it's just not that important. And so Paul says we need to be characterized as a people who show the surpassing value of the person and the work of Jesus by standing firm and by striving to grow in our own faith and helping others to grow in it as well. But he goes on in verse 28, and he kind of adds this as well. He says, doing that without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. See, what Paul's talking about is the idea that the way that you stand firm, the, the way, that you, uh, the way that, you, that you strive for the faith, that the way you do that matters. And there's a way to do that and to try to do that that's full of fearfulness and anxiety and worry and just about desperately trying to cling to what you can keep hold of. And there's another way to do that that's full of confidence and hope and security. And when you face opposition in that kind of a way, what happens is it speaks volume about the object in which you have put your faith. See, in the early church in, in Smyrna, there was a leader named Polycarp and he was just a really profound leader in that church, an influencer in the, in the midst of the early days. And, and at the age of 86, Polycarp was informed on and arrested by uh, the Roman emperor worship people and taken to Rome, commanded by government officials to deny Christ. And he famously responded to, to those demands in this way. He said, 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How could I blaspheme my king who has saved? Furious, the officials threatened to give him to wild beasts and finally to burn him alive, but he would not recant. He responded to them this way, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a little while and is soon extinguished, but you don't know the coming fire of judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. He says, what are you waiting for? Do what you came to do. You see, the way that Polycarp endured opposition it had profound impact 
on the way that the early church responded to opposition as well. What you see is that that's the same that happened for Paul. Just last week, Aaron was preaching out of chapter one where Paul writes about how he's in prison and he's saying that the way that he has been acted, the way that he has lived in prison, he's, he's facing the very real possibility of death and that he is not consumed by fear and anxiety and worry and, and, and all that kind of stuff. He's confident in what God is doing, whether no matter what that outcome is. And what happens is you see is that in Paul's life, he says that what that's doing is that's actually emboldening a bunch of people in Rome to start talking about Jesus and sharing their faith in, in real kinds of ways. Because what they see is the value of it. They see how much it matters. They see that there's this confidence and hope that it's worth giving everything for. And so standing firm and striving for the faith and resisting fear, there are all these really key ways that we get to show the worth of the gospel and, and the value. But there's one more thing. Maybe you noticed it. Let me, let me read the verses 27, 28 again. Paul says to them, he says, and he wants, them to, he wants to hear that they are standing firm in the one spirit, that they're striving together as one for faith in the gospel, and they're not frightened in any way. You see, the last way that Paul says that, that our lives reveal the surpassing worth of the person and the work of Jesus is when we do those things together. When we're unified in the midst of it as a body of believers, you see, a transformed community, it reveals something different than just a transformed individual. When a community of people from all different kinds of backgrounds and all different kinds of places bind together who are willing to let go of their own priorities for the sake of the priority of the gospel, that communicates something powerful. But more than that, the reality is, is that the only way that you're going to stand firm is if you do it together. That language about standing firm, it calls to mind, uh, in that day, it would have called to mind this picture of the Roman phalanx. Roman soldiers held these huge shields, and in the midst of battle, they would, they would stand next to each other close by, and they would jam their shields into the ground, and they would form an impenetrable wall. And you were not getting through it. And yet what would happen is sometimes soldiers would peek out the side, or they would lean out the edge, and they'd be on their own, and they'd get picked off immediately. You see, when, when the only way you're going to be able to stand, for the, stand firm in the faith, you cannot do it by yourself. You need brothers and sisters in Christ. You need others who are encouraging you towards it. You need others who are going to keep helping you to stand firm when you are feeling weak. But also, he talks as well about striving for the faith together as one. The idea that you just, you can't, it's not only can you stand firm in the faith, you can't keep growing by yourself. You cannot do it by yourself. That word that's translated as striving together, it's actually where we get our English word for athletics. A sports team, a, a community of athletes striving together for one goal. You see, Paul's picture here is that the church is as a team and the only way, to, the only way towards victory is to do it together. The only way you can grow is to do it together. There's no I in team. Apparently that was a biblical value before it was something else, right? And when you're standing firm and striving together with fellow believers, what will happen is that you'll be able to refuse to give in to fear. One commentator sums it up this way. He writes, Satan wants us to think we're alone in the battle, that our difficulties are unique, but such is not the case. Paul reminds the Philippians that he is going through the same difficulties that they are experiencing hundreds of miles from Rome. And knowing that fellow believers are sharing in the battle is an encouragement for us as we seek to keep going and to pray for them as we pray for ourselves. We're not in it alone. 
And if you try to stand firm alone and strive to grow alone, you will always give in to fear. You need a community. And some of you are characterized by an inability to stand firm and an inability to make progress in your faith because you keep trying to do it by yourself. And you need a community to do it. You cannot do it by yourself. So Paul calls us as Christians to live a life that shows the surpassing worth of belonging to Jesus' kingdom by being characterized by standing firm and by striving together for growth, by resisting fear and by pursuing unity and doing it together. At the end of verse 27 or verse 28, what he says is that when you live like that, it is a sign of two incredibly important spiritual realities. He says in verse 28, it's a sign of the eternal destruction of those who oppose the gospel, but also of the eternal salvation of those who suffer for it. You cannot miss what Paul is doing here. He is reframing opposition to the gospel. He's reframing suffering that we walk through for the name of Jesus. He's reframing that as an encouragement. That should, I don't know about you, I was studying that this week, I was like, that blows my mind, right? Because I do not think about suffering and opposition as an encouragement in any way, shape, or form. Like, there's like 0% of that that connects with me. And I'm like, mm, nah, I don't think so, right? Maybe you're that way, right? But the reality is that that is what's true. Paul, in fact, what he goes to say, he goes to say a step further. He says, not only is it that, not only is it that God's granted you as a good gift that you might have faith in him, that the ability you have to put your faith in him is not something you earned or merited or figured out. It's something he revealed to you. It's something he made true about you. It's a gift that he gave you to believe in him. And what he says is that he also gives you a good gift, just as good as the belief in him is a good gift. He says he gives us the opportunity to suffer as a good gift. You see, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says it this way, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Acts chapter 5 the apostles has been arrested and beaten for talking about Jesus. And what it says is that they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. It says they left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. They rejoiced in that. You see, and we, we look at the the, we look at a life of suffering or opposition to our faith, and that feels anything but something worth rejoicing in. But what Paul's doing is he's reframing it here in one really important way, because one of the things that he says is that that should be an encouragement to you. When you have the opportunity to suffer for the person and the work of Jesus, that should encourage you because that should be an affirmation of your faith. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. And so Paul says that should encourage you because it means you're on the right team. You're headed the right direction. But throughout the New Testament, we also see a few other really important ways that the, that the gospel writers talk about how suffering is actually a good gift for us. We see secondly as well throughout the New Testament that it's a good gift because it promotes our sanctification. It, it helps us to grow up in our faith. Romans chapter 5, Paul writes, he says, we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame. 
Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through his spirit who has been given to us. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, he says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you've had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth than gold, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. It's for your good. It's for our good. And what we see last as well is that it's not just affirms our salvation and helps us to grow, but it gives us chances to make much of Jesus. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus is warning the disciples about what it will cost to follow him, and he tells them, but before this, they will seize you and persecute you. They'll hand you over to the synagogues and put you in prison, and you'll be brought before kings and governors all on account of my name, and you will get the chance to bear testimony. You see, the reality is, is that opportunities to suffer in the name of Jesus, they give us chances to show that he is supremely valuable. Because you don't suffer for stuff that doesn't matter. And you don't suffer for things that aren't worth it. And if you're willing to endure suffering, what it shows is that Jesus is immeasurably valuable to you. And you get the chance to make much of him help others to see how valuable he really is. So Paul calls us to live lives worthy of the gospel, to be citizens of heaven who demonstrate with our lives the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, belonging to him, and all that he's done to make us citizens of his kingdom. But before we close out, what I want to do is I want to come back to that language about being worthy of the gospel. That call Paul gives in the beginning, he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel because I think it can be really easy for us to approach all the stuff that we've been talking about this morning, the call to stand firm and to strive for the faith and to, and to, and to resist fear and to pursue unity. It could be easy for us to look at that stuff through the lens of trying to earn what Jesus has done for us, to, to be the thing, I just need to really work hard at these things so Jesus will feel like it's worth it, that his sacrifice was worth it for me. And that is problematic in all kinds of ways. Remember growing up watching the movie uh, Saving Private Ryan, and spoiler alert, it's old enough, I feel like I can tell you how it goes, right? But um, the story in the movie is, is, is that there's a, a captain, his name's Captain Miller, and a team of soldiers, they're sent to go rescue a young private who's caught behind enemy lines. And what happens is, is at the end of the movie, they, they end up rescuing him. But in the process, everyone on the team that was, went, that was sent to rescue him dies. And Captain Miller, his dying words to Private Ryan, as he's dying in his arms, he says, earn this. Flash forward, what you see is 60 years later, this 80-year-old private is standing at Captain Miller's grave. And he's asking, He says, have I, have I lived a good life? Have I been a good man? What he wants to know is if he earned it. Did he make it worth it? He is crushed under the weight of a life that has been spent lived trying to be worthy of a sacrifice he was not worthy of. And it can be easy to feel the same way about our faith. It can be easy to feel Paul's words this morning as a burden that says, be worthy of Jesus. 
be worthy of what he's done. But I need you to hear this. You cannot miss this. Paul is not saying earn the gospel. He's not saying earn what Jesus has done for you. And you need to see this. Neither did Jesus. Jesus' last words on the cross were not make this count. His final words weren't make sure this was worth it because it really was hard. His final words on the cross were it is finished. It's done. You see, and when you understand that you are made worthy by Jesus' act, not by your own, then what happens is you get to live a life that is not spent under the crushing weight of trying to earn a sacrifice, but instead you get to live a life responding in love to a sacrifice. You shouldn't have. It changes you. Brian Chappell, he sums it up this way. He writes, if we had to earn his sacrifice, it would crush us. But because it was the will of the Father to crush him on our behalf, we live to show the world his worth. And we live in a manner that reflects a love for him and that shows the worth of his gift. Church, it's so important that you see the motivations that Paul gives here. It is so easy to live a life that is just driven by religiosity and duty and obligation. And if you try to live that way, trying to earn something that you could not earn, you will, live, you, will, you will be at the tomb at the end of your life and you will be still crushed under the weight of trying to earn a sacrifice you're not worthy of. And it's only when you see that Jesus' death is the declaration that he says you are worth the sacrifice, not because of what you've done, but because he says it so. That's the only way that you get the fuel you need to actually live a life worthy of the gospel. Because here's the secret. This is not a secret, right? Here's the not secret secret, right? Standing firm in your faith is hard, and striving for spiritual growth is hard, and resisting fear is hard, and unity is hard, and all of it's hard. And none of it's easy and none of it comes naturally. It's all difficult. And you will never be willing to enter into the difficult, hard parts of pursuing Jesus and living a life standing firm for him and striving for growth in him and pursuing unity with people that are hard. You will never do it. It will never be a life. It'll just be this crushing burden for you unless what you get is that Jesus said you were worth it before you did anything. And you get to respond out of love for him to give your whole life back saying, Jesus, I want to make the sacrifice. I want to show the world the worth of your sacrifice for me as immeasurably valuable, as something that surpasses everything else. There is nothing more important. So I want to call you to that church not to a life of duty and obligation and a life of just trying really hard, but I want to call you to a life of loving response to the king who declared that you were worth the sacrifice he gave for you, not because of you, but because of him. Let that free you. Let that fill you up. Let it overflow out of you into a life that's characterized by standing firm in the midst of opposition 
by striving, not being passive for the growth in yourself and so that others might know him. Let it overflow into you into a life characterized that refuses to give into fear and that pursues unity even though it's hard so that the world might see the surpassing value of belonging to Jesus and all that he's done to make that possible. That's what we're celebrating and remembering on every week when we take communion, reminding ourselves about the good news of the gospel and about how Jesus' body broken, his blood shed for us is the thing that makes us right with him. And so communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, it's a chance for you to remember the worth of his sacrifice. And all it changes for you so that you might be full of a love for him that overflows into a life lived for him. Others might see the surpassing value of him. So if you're here this morning and you've placed your trust in Jesus, if he is your king, then I want to encourage you, go back and take communion during our time of worship. Ask God to help you remember the worth of his sacrifice and to let that fuel a life lived for him. But for those of you who are here and you're still figuring out what it means to follow Jesus, and if surrendering to him as king is something you even want to do, I just want to encourage you. I want you to know how welcome you are here and in this community, but I want to encourage you to hold off on taking communion because God is not after empty rituals and going through religious motions. What he's after is a life that is convinced of an eternal reality that only he can provide and who lives joyfully in response to him, not to try to get something from him. And so if you've trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, go back and take communion. As we close, I want to encourage you all, talk with God. And I want you to ask him, I want to encourage you to ask him to help you see what is it that your life is revealing that you value supremely? What does your life reveal is of surpassing worth to you? There's this old poem, I don't know if anybody knows who it's written by, but it's called The Gospel According to You. It goes this way, it says, you are writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do, the words that you say. Men read what you write, whether faithful or true. And so what is the gospel according to you? What is it that your life reveals? It has surpassing, supreme value in Ask God to help you see if that's him or if it's something else. And then ask him by his grace to help empower you to live in such a way that he is the thing that is seen as most valuable in you. Let's pray. Father God, we are so grateful that we cannot earn our salvation from you. God, that there is nothing we could do to make ourselves worthy, and yet in the person and the work of Jesus at the cross, you declare that we are worth it to you that your sacrifice was worth making for us. And so, God, we want to be filled up, not with, a, not with the burden to try to earn something we could not, but with the reality that we have been given, that we have been counted worthy of a sacrifice we could never earn. God, that, might that fill us to overflowing so that we would be characterized by standing firm in our faith in the midst of any and all opposition, that we might be characterized by striving, by pursuing relentlessly a faith in you and a pursuit of growth in you and that others might know you in it, Jesus. And might we be characterized by refusing to give into fear and by pursuing a unity as a people together so we can live those things out. We need you, Jesus. 
so we ask that you would you would create those things you would cause them to be true in us so that we might display with our lives the surpassing value of belonging to you we pray